Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with experimental musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Kelly Jane Jones, an artist and improviser who is particularly distinctive, I think, for her relationship with listening, which is a very visceral relationship, I think, based on both seeing her live and also hearing her in discussion and speaking to her for this podcast. She talks a lot about both intense listening, but listening as a very physical act, about the presence of body within the act of listening, which is something that, as we discuss, can sometimes be lost in electroacoustic and acousmatic experiences. It was really fascinating hearing Kelly talking about that. And what's also really fascinating is her collaboration with Martina Roberts that she's doing right now as part of Outlands. As I speak and as this goes out, the duo are conducting a three-day residency at The Cube in Bristol before heading out on the road to perform in a variety of really interesting places. So there's London, Bexhill, Cambridge, Milton Keynes, Plymouth, Birmingham, Manchester and Bradford. And Kelly will be doing workshops along the way on group improvisation. We talk about that in this podcast. And again, so interesting to hear about Kelly's thoughts on the utility of improvisation, particularly in a group context. So head over to outlands.network for more information on that collaboration and over to kellyjanejones.org for more on Kelly's upcoming projects and her music. This conversation was really great. I loved Kelly's picks. I should say now that one of her choices is the soundtrack to The Colour of Pomegranates and I listened to the wrong soundtrack. I listened to Nicholas Jar's soundtrack and Kelly was actually referring to the original soundtrack that came out with the film. And so remarkably we managed to have this conversation both having listened to entirely different records and still not realise the fact that we're talking about entirely different works of sound. So bear that in mind when I keep talking about the score by Nicholas Jar and mentioning the name Nicholas. Actually, Kelly's choice is the score by Tigran Mansurian. Other than that, dive in, enjoy this. And as always, you can find out more information on Kelly's picks and Kelly's music as well over at attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening. Without further babble, here's Kelly Jane Jones on Crucial Listening.
Hello, Kelly. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi. Good to speak to you, Jack. Good to speak to you as well. Um, I want to start by asking about your upcoming collaboration through Outlands with Martina Roberts, which is starting this May and this seems to be taking you all throughout the UK. Is it starting at the Bristol Cube, I believe? Is that right? Yeah, we're going to... Um, we're going to have a little three-day residency to start off the tour, just to give us a really nice focused time together. It sounded like I've spoken to Martina already um, from her side. Oh, oh, cool. Yeah, sorry, I should have said. <laughs> um, <it's, laughs> sounds like that she's keeping from her side expectations open as to what's going to take place during that 3d um, three-day residency i mean is that the case from your side as well yeah i think you you can't really i don't know force things until you're in well maybe you can't force things at all but i think especially there's no point imposing these kind of um ideas or structures before we actually get in the room together and just like check out the chemistry Hmm. And what are your thoughts on your experiences with Martina's work so far? I mean, I know you've both shared festival bills before and, um, you know, you've been in each other's company before. What draws you to Martina's work? I mean, initially I came into contact with her recordings, um, the Coin Coin chapter series, and was just just incredibly moved by her music, like really just completely moved by it. So I was really, I didn't really know what to expect from her performances because I think those things sometimes can really translate differently. And I just found her performance, the first time I saw her was in Manchester in May last year. And it was, it, yeah, it just didn't disappoint in any way. It was really kind of, had a rawness to it but this incredible musical outlet for I don't know just emotion and reflection uh and I I was yeah really enjoyed the setup that she had she's actually got the same sampler as me the 808 the Roland 808 ah cool Uh, no sorry 404 um I think 808 (laughs) uh yeah so yeah, it was there was some synergies already with her setup, um, which was interesting. And yeah, her performance at Supernormal, where she, I don't know if you saw that one, she was um, just, she did two sets, but one where she did solo saxophone and was just telling these incredible little stories in between, like really kind of these amazing reflections about her experience of playing the experience of her being on stage and that con- self-consciousness of being on stage, which I just thought was so brave as well. Cause yeah. I, I, maybe I kind of through my, the way of moving around the stage, I kind of maybe some of that self-consciousness comes across, you know, but I think she actually vocalized what that can feel like, you know, um, which was, yeah, I thought was incredibly powerful and brave. And the other performance was that based on the third in the Coin Coin series. I know she's been playing that material. Yeah, exactly. So she's reading the fragments that she's kind of put together and reads from her book mm. and using sort of field recordings, um, synthesizer, saxophone, and vocals was the other set. So that kind of 
had similarities to the set that I saw in Manchester last year. And with the collaboration that you've got with Outlands, as part of that, you're doing some workshops yourself, which sound awesome, to be honest. I mean, can you tell me a little bit about the central idea of that? It sounds like there's a bit of context and perhaps also a political tie to the intention behind what you're doing with those workshops I don't know if you could talk to me a bit about that yeah I think I've kind of been improvising for for quite a few years now like maybe over 10 years and it's it just seems to be in like evolving I guess you know and changing and um these ideas of you know it's not just the performance it's the whole context of your what you're bringing to the space kind of psychologically the context around the places that you play in maybe places you have played in um your relationship to other people improvising and also just in general yeah there's these these themes of just dynamics um and i guess i'm focusing in specifically on power and I studied philosophy actually I didn't study music I did some lessons as I was growing up um got free school lessons in flute but essentially these ideas that I'm coming from a really kind of a philosophical perspective on on power really and like what that means to enact power and then trying to extrapolate some ideas about how is it then that improvising context in a a, you know in a room in a specific group dynamic how then does that have an impact outside of that room is there an impact at all actually I, I don't know I can't answer those questions so that's kind of an ongoing inquiry for me so the workshops yeah we won't be doing all of that in the workshops I mean these <laughs> ideas are going to be in there mm-hmm. but they're they're still very much to be worked out but the workshops will be using some of those ideas about dynamics of playing the interpersonal power dynamics that can kind of come out when you're in a room of players performers um but then to try and focus inwards we'll be doing some ideas based on pauline oliveros's sort of listening because i think that's really key about how we relate to each other how we listen to each other Mm. um and trying to bring back some kind of reflection on the present moment to then be able to have some tools to go into then talking and thinking about power um i'll be referencing some ideas around john zorn's um like game pieces that he did but i find his pieces are incredibly fun and possibly kind of embrace the aggressiveness of power dynamics whereas i'm going to try to tease out some more i guess softer power ideas about like cooperation negotiation um towards like a a collective goal it's interesting i hope that makes sense yeah that sounds wonderful i mean um it's really interesting i think you mentioned that there's a more of a philosophical underpinning than a musical one i mean it's when i saw that you were doing workshops relating to the idea of free improvisation i was like gosh i mean how does someone relay their ideas within something that has such a liberal means of manifesting itself i guess but uh, do, do you think having that philosophical foundation rather than necessarily a musical one is crucial to how you know being able to actually communicate and relay ideas around you know how we can contemplate uh, improvisation and free improvisation uh i don't i don't know 
I mean, I think people do it all the time, but they just it, maybe they just don't really think about it, or or they will think it, they will think about it, and they'll probably articulate it in their own way. I mean, hmm. it just so happens that that's my background, but I think it does give me this kind of different perspective because, you know, I didn't go through this rigid music school background. You know, I think that gives me a lot. That's given me a lot of freedom in the way that I approach music but also sound and I you know I you know I don't even know if you can just pigeonhole it I, I wouldn't just say that it is music I, I don't quite know what it is I think it's um it's a collection of experiences that I'm trying to tease out in some way I don't really feel like I belong to the music tradition really that's interesting um is there so is there like I, I don't know, particular aspects of um the music tradition that maybe feel like they don't accommodate aspects of your practice i would say so i think i mean this is really in terms of music education i, I you know I, I know composers have over the years have really challenged what that definition is of but i feel the experience of music education that I had growing up was really, was just not enjoyable at all. And, it, you know, it meant that I stopped doing music, really. I mean, I had, like, free school lessons. It wasn't, you know, I didn't go off to any, like, posh school or anything. But even those teachers that were doing it, I, they, they didn't have a love for the subject. They couldn't relay anything about musicality or enjoyment or being in the present moment it was really about this uh, you know perfect articulation of something written on a page hmm. um so that you know maybe if i'd had a, a different you know I, I don't know maybe some people go to some great music schools and they have a great experience so I, this is very much based on my own experience of music education yeah it was something very much on the forefront of my mind today. Yesterday, I rewatched that film Whiplash, where it feels like it very much speaks to that. That one aspect of learning music is—it's almost like music doesn't even need to be there. It's learning a skill to the point at which um, you're good at it, and it's, it just so happens that you're making sound while you're doing that. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, great. I mean, I really hope the, the workshops go well. I mean, is there, um, I, I don't know to what extent you've got this mapped out or whether it's more fluid than this, but is there something, uh, say, that the workshops will, will culminate in or, or like a, a performance at the end or something or how will the w workshops conclude? They're quite different, diverse groups in each venue, but one of my hopes is that some outcomes of the project will be that we have some kind of platform. It could be really quite simple, but a way of connecting up some of the performers or people who have been in the workshops to maybe, you know, kind of foster future collaborations. I think if even if like one person decides to carry on something or if a couple of people decide to get together to try something out, that would be a success for me. Fantastic. Well, I hope it is a success. And the whole collaboration, I think, sounds really exciting. Like, there seems to be a real buzz about it as well. I mean, I certainly feel that too. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how that, that manifests for you both. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And you've brought three albums with you to the table for this crucial listening. I mean, as always, I've asked you to 
um, put forward three records you deem to be important. One question I like to ask is whether there's any particular means by which you consider the term important when it came to putting this list together. Um, you know, we have people who say that particular records are important because it shaped them in terms of what they do as a musician or simply change the boundaries uh, through which they think about, you know, what they listen to and what music can do. But I mean, was there any particular uh, means of interpreting importance in order to come up with the list that you have? I think these are these well the arc is really quite a recent thing for me but the other two the color of pomegranates and visage the burial piece they're just pieces that I could I every time I listen to them they just they just move me incredibly um and I just mm-hmm. it, it's it's even beyond words I just some of the textures in them um I just find like new little like crevices within the piece that I've not quite, you know, sort of focused on before. Um, and yeah, they're, they're things that I go back to and listen to quite a lot. I th- yeah, I think the most important thing is just the experience of listening to it. Like I can't really do anything else when I listen to them. Like they're not things that you can <laughs> in the background. It's like, I'm just completely mesmerized by it. I mean, Ark is a bit different because I think I'm really interested in his production techniques and it's a a little bit more of an intellectual kind of I'm thinking about how the hell is he doing that or how's he doing that um but you know I think there's there is definitely similarity but kind of bringing it forward into I don't know maybe the the future of kind of electroacoustic music for me yeah I I mean when you say you can't do anything else when you listen to these pieces of music (laughs) 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 <laughs> I wonder, is, is there a uh, particular place or um, environment in which you have for, like, optimal, I don't know, listen to something optimally or when you're sitting down to, like, really listen to something and you're like, okay, this is my setup for doing that? Well, it's usually at home and I'm, I usually, oh, yeah, I put that on. I haven't listened to that for a little while. And then I'll just stop. Like, you know, my intention is to get on with something else, but often I just can't, like I can't move away from the stereo and like I just get into a bit of a weird trance. (laughs) It's like that. Yeah. And there are other pieces of music that do that as well, but I often like I'm wandering around the room muttering to myself going, that's just fucking incredible. Like what the hell is that? (laughs) <laughs> yeah no i can relate to that um well it's <laughs> <laughs> it seems a little bit <laughs> personal <laughs> i don't come across as a complete idiot <laughs> <laughs> no i think there's a lot of people that'd be like oh shit that's me too um probably quite <laughs> relieved that someone else is saying it you know <laughs> uh, uh, well let's get stuck in i mean if, if you'd like to pick the first record to talk about and maybe tell me a little bit about why it's important as well um, so the first one is The Colour of Pomegranates, which is the soundtrack. Well, it's a film, but obviously I've kind of I've given it as the soundtrack. But I don't think you can actually get the soundtrack from anywhere. Um, I have had to look over the years to try and get it, but I've, I've not managed to. So, I, you know, I just I've ripped it off YouTube, basically. I think it's a free I, I, download. I think he put it out just for free. Yeah. It might even be on Ubu web as well. Um, right. Yeah, so I've just got like a crappy MP3 version of it. But, you know, it's the same when you're watching the film itself. You know, it's 
they kind of stand alone. I think you, I can completely listen to the soundtrack on its own. And equally when you watch the film with the, the visual element, it's, it's a, it's another experience. Again, this is one that I've came across probably, I don't know, maybe eight years ago or so. We were working with the artist Harris of Hamananda, who we, when I was with the group Part Wild Horses Main on both sides, we, we worked with her quite a lot on her installations and we're doing sort of sound installations, themes, soundtrack to her films. And one of her biggest inspirations, she said, for her filmmaking was this film and I hadn't come across it before. Um, so immediately, you know, got a copy of the DVD and just completely blown away by it. The sounds are just these incredible fragments these yeah it's just really really kind of fragile and powerful at the same time so that's that's my first choice yeah (laughs) it's um yeah it's strange because i saw some interviews with him where he talks about the fact that you know this was an incredibly personal work for him which i never really think about that in the context of a soundtrack if something's uh, produced with the intention of being aligned with the work of someone else for, for it to be considered a personal work by an artist really jumped out at me but yes yeah, it it sounds really interesting it, from from what i read from the the notes of it like he had all of this material that was for various different things and then the movie almost made them make sense which feels like the reverse for you know most soundtracks you know it's absolutely fascinating how he's put it together um it's incredible so so the first time you encountered this soundtrack was in the context of the film itself then or watching it and hearing the soundtrack at the same time yeah And it was just with repeated, you know, watchings of the film, just how how incredible the sound was in its own right, actually. So, I mean, I do watch the film um, and I've rewatched again some bits of it in the last week leading up to speaking to you. Mm. But it's almost like the sound sometimes it's disconnected from what you see and happening in the film. Sometimes there's this kind of delay in the sound and the the action that you'll see being played out which I found really interesting and that was actually quite a big inspiration for how we were making these sound pieces for for Harris yeah this being kind of surreal connection between what you see and what you hear you know because we're so used to films being joined up you know the sound is is in complete sync mm. Uh, with what you see happening i mean it's such a simple simple thing but it adds to this um kind of dreamlike quality you know where you're not quite sure which thing has caused another thing which thing came first i mean it sounds like as well i was looking at uh, i was basically researching the film as well and i see it's about it's a biography isn't it of this armenian singer um yeah sayat nova yeah and albeit a very poetic biography in the sense that it sounds like the film really struggled to get a foothold when it came out because I believe I can't remember where the government was in which this 
took place but were like you're not doing this singer justice with this biography there's not enough yeah. it doesn't make sense um yes which is yeah. fascinating well i think his idea was to actually he wasn't so interested in this like chronological narrative of the poet's life site mm. nova it was more this um which i'm fascinated by is like this kind of way of getting inside the mind of the poet mm. at different points in his life you know how would you kind of reveal some elements of this poet's mind in a film and that's i think is actually his project yeah it completely reframed the way that i was looking at what i was looking at when i understand understood that to be the intention i mean i think i'm still my immediate instincts with film i think are very conservative like i i'm looking for means of understanding things in a very linear way and then it's only the 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 alternative reveals itself rather than being immediately apparent so with this i was like what you know what on earth is going on but as soon as he realizes it's an embodiment of something more than just a narrative and a straight story. It's um, really opens up, but it feels appropriate that Nicholas's work as well also has this autonomy from purely following the images. That almost feels in tribute to the means by which the film is put together as well. It's not this it's not falling in line with how soundtracks are generally perceived to be in, in their, in terms of their role alongside the film. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it's, it's, you're more kind of being carried away with these, these fragmentary moments that, you know, so mentioned like dreamlike, mm. but also the symbolism I think within the film is really strong. I, I mean, I don't, I don't understand all of it, but you know, just like this recurrence of the pomegranate and this recurrence of themes like water, washing, bathing, um, these books, the the use of movement and wind, the rhythm and pace of it. It's it's almost like you're just you're just taking part in this or you're kind of witness to well, it's not the poet's mind, but Paraginov's interpretation of the poet's mind you're just with him on this in this experience you know I feel like that would translate well into just a maybe I mean Harris did this in film installation with four screens which we did a, a, a sound track to which was just looping but they would all loop endlessly so you'd get these so you'd see different fragments from the films and different parts of the soundtrack at different points. So you never really got the same experience twice. Right. And I, it's not quite the same thing with this film, but I almost feel like it would translate well into that. Like you could almost see it on like four different screens and have these fragments of sound kind of coming in and out and it would still give the same experience. Yeah. I, that must be interesting for you, in fact, to have done that project. I mean, what was it like seeing the images constantly re renewing, I guess, their relationship with the sound and, and finding different points of intersection? It's just really kind of magical. And I, I really, I, I think you can't exhaust, I think, you know, the way that we made the sounds for these images, you, you can't exhaust them. I don't know. I just felt mm. like there was such a chemistry there with how specifically we worked with Harris, uh, you know, it just came together so well 
And I really am interested in that idea of you kind of set within a cert, the certain parameters of these images and sounds which renew, but you still have um, a connection or a feeling that kind of does kind of create a, a um, you know piece of string throughout. And I think the that idea just conceptually of never really exhausting the possibilities of combinations is something that I'm still really interested in. So constructing something that is a like a principle that then you can put different inputs into, you mean? I guess how how you make a choice about these different sounds to go with images that still somehow make a connection. Hmm. So it doesn't actually matter which sound you're hearing, you still... I mean, maybe that's more just from the artist's point of view, like when you're making something, how then there is still a, a, a link between the two. And I feel like Paradjanov does that really well in the film where there's this kind of disconnect, but somehow they're just really intimately connected somehow. I mean, maybe that's more my experience of of those collections of sounds and images. Is Is there a particular... Or, or any particular images or sequences when you think back to it now that particularly protrude in your mind in terms of a particular combination of, of you know, a visual and, and a set of sounds during any point of the film? I re- well, yeah, one of my favourite... Well, there's a few... There's, I mean, they're all so magical, but um, the, the books, um, when they're kind of laid out to dry they're kind of they've been um somehow like completely soaked and then there's this scene where they're sort of squished down um with a a stone i think and then you just see all the water kind of coming out and there's this you do have the sound of the water kind of being squished out but it's it's somehow more surreal than that and then there's the it goes on to the sequence of the the book's kind of being laid out to dry by this, I think it's the young poet as a boy. The pages of the books are kind of being like uh, flapped open by the wind. And yeah, it's just really, it's really kind of simple somehow, but yeah, just really poetic. And then the the text, I mean, it's in Armenian, but you, there is a translation and it's something about the power of books and that we, the rely, you know, how we rely on these books for our sources of information. And yeah, it's just a, just a really beautiful passage. And that this recurrence of water kind of comes back through again and again throughout the whole film. So you hear water sounds, but in so many different ways. So it kind of being squished out of the books. Then you hear the pages of the books sort of drying out, like wetened and then kind of drying. And then the bathing that comes uh, shortly after, the washing, uh, dripping. Yeah, that's... um, something I'm just being really remembering and because I was making at the time like all these water sounds like how do you make them sound kind of a bit like how the the composer Mansourian has made like how do you get the water to sound that like incredibly diverse it's just amazing (laughs) there's the scene as well the one that juts out in my mind where they got like a ton of rugs i don't know if they're being washed or what Uh, yeah and they're washing them that's another theme with the water and like this idea of washing yeah yeah there's something really satisfying about looking at that as well (laughs) just the water drenching Mm -hmm. into the fabric it's such a lovely shot 
Yeah. And then there's the scene with the, the materials that when they're dyeing the cloth, and there are all these different bright colours and, you know, I've got this really wet cloth and you can really hear the sound of it. And then it kind of drops down into a kind of, um, yeah, some kind of, not a, a, a bowl, but so, yeah, it kind of dropped onto something. And you hear this really kind of like wet, squidgy sound. <laughs> it, <sounds> really, <laughs> it doesn't sound very inspirational the way I'm saying it, but it's there's something about the way that he's... I mean, again, which I think is really important in terms of electroacoustic music, electroacoustic composition techniques. Yeah, because I think the composer was mostly making classical music. Like, I've not really checked out that much of what he's done, but it's um, it's really, you know, it's kind of for cello, it's uh, piano pieces, orchestral pieces. But his soundtrack to this film is is it seems quite apart from everything else he's done. Well, speaking of you know, electroacoustic music, I wonder if that's a good segue into your second album. Would you like to tell me what it is and then also a little bit about why it's important as well? The next one I chose was uh, Visage by Luciano Berrio. And again, this is a piece that I go back to again and again and again. It just feels like different things coming in and out of focus each time I listen to it. I'll hear something that I've not quite captured before or I'll hear it in a different way and just Kathy Barbarian's vocals are just really sublime powerful kind of conducting this all these different emotions like the spectrum of emotions and experiences which I've not really heard in all together in one piece where it's you know because I think that thing could get quite tiring actually to listen to but somehow for me this piece is is really an absolute pleasure to listen to yeah her performance is amazing it sort of prodded some buttons in my I don't know what it is human empathy or whatever but it's sort of elements I mean obviously she's covering such a array of emotions but often quite a lot of distress i mean it sounds like the kind of sounds that emerge when i've heard people having night terrors and interacting with something you know quite deep and disturbing like a lot of i was like oh christ you know and it it's quite intense at certain points i guess is what i'm saying yeah it is it's incredibly intense but i think also what kind of comes across is is it doesn't it doesn't even feel like she's acting these things out it feels like it's there's an immediacy there's a rawness and a real um honesty to her performance Mm. do you see what i mean because i think sometimes you can get an actor who would a musician maybe more you know more so or someone who is a vocal performer you know kind of enacting these emotions but in maybe a bit more of a forced way yeah i think what she does is is really something else and 
I, I, every time I listen to it, it feels like you're absolutely inside her experience. It's which is maybe why it doesn't it's it doesn't become annoying because I think actually that that could actually be really annoying <laughs> and maybe <laughs> yeah. it's for a lot of people you know but because it's so intense you know maybe you could only listen to fragments of it and then you would be you know a bit kind of overwhelmed hmm. yeah but I feel like they really both of them Berio and I think you know uh, Barbarian really should be massively applauded for the combination of the two of them working together on this i think it's it's really a, an incredible piece of sound music yeah i i totally agree in that it could really in a different context be really fatiguing uh i i wonder if it's because there's a lot of ambiguity i think as well it's not it doesn't feel like she's been given instructions to elicit a particular emotion or something it's there's a lot of unknowns to how she's what she's conveying and what um, and what's coming through that i guess it, it could be possible to listen back through i mean you mentioned that you're always pick up picking up on new stuff and I, I think in listens for me um where i've heard something and initially interpreted it as having some kind of emotional hue and to hear it again it's completely reframed just purely through the variable that is the circumstance of my listening experience. I wonder if that's got anything to do with the like longevity of of the piece. The way that she's performed it, I guess she's following her own train or trail of of um experience in the moment. Yeah, I wonder yeah, I wonder if it's that thing of I don't know, that yeah, she's not maybe not, just not even questioning what's you know what's being put forth and therefore there's like a i don't know if it's naivety is the right word but just um a sense of something that's maybe not fully formed or fully understood and i I feel that when i listen to it as well it's just like i don't really know what she's uh going through or what's being elicited yeah, here, you know yeah. definitely i think i mean it kind of goes back to this idea of this kind of unconscious kind of revealing itself through a performance of some sort. And I think for me, may, maybe that is indeed like why, why I'm so attracted to it is because maybe, you know, her being so present and in the moment, like maybe that was like a usual day for her, right. this kind of really massive array of emotion, you know, cause she, you can really feel that she's feeling what she's doing. Mm. And maybe she doesn't really understand it. And that's why I kind of think it's possibly this revealing of her unconscious. Because I I don't think many performers could do that, to be quite honest. No. I think it would be incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, And what about um, Berio's electronics as well? I mean, they felt very... Uh, I couldn't... You know, if you heard them in isolation, I wouldn't have been able to say when this piece was done. Those electronics could have come from something released now yeah I, I agree like I still yeah I'll listen back and it's it's not I'm not quite sure yeah like the sound sources and how exactly he's making those sounds mm. and I guess it would have been composed where it would have been on tape at the time I imagine synthesizers and some processing with tapes yeah, yeah I, I agree I, I feel like it it is all it is almost something that 
you could hear now and be equally kind of baffled by. But for the time that it was it was made, I think it's yeah. Again, well, again, that's why he was such a a pioneer in the work that he was doing. It seemed as well. It was interesting that I think he mentioned that this was designed um, for the radio rather than for performance. Or ah. yeah, which puts another spin on it, I guess. And he said, "What was it?" it was, oh yeah, I've, I've got a note. I think he says that it's the composer's reverential bow to the radio, one of the most widespread media for diffusing pointless words, which almost gives it like a political <laughs> utility as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how did you first hear this? Do you remember where you first came across it? Oh gosh, uh, I think. When I, because I, I'm just um, at the end of a master's in electroacoustic composition, and when I was just looking into, I guess researching just different things that I feel impact or influence rather my ways of making music, and I was kind of starting to work with text scores and voice and vocals in different ways, and different ways of delivering things. I, I just came across this specific piece uh yeah because i was reading about like the grm and i think he was was he director i think in the early 80s was it of the or was it urcan i think so he you know he's been incredibly recognized for his work in electroacoustic music and i really am interested in the juxtaposition of not just electroacoustic music you know like acousmatic music just in itself but how then you can incorporate these sounds with performance and performers so this just seemed a really mm. a really kind of apt and powerful thing to start lo looking at really how you can have this kind of visceral emotion with a performer and a tape piece at the same time yeah. um you know because i've heard quite a lot of stuff and it's not always my cup of tea. It's not always something that's really kind of spoken to me, but this, this piece really has stood out and it's, it's interesting that you say it was, it was for radio and I, I can kind of understand, I can kind of understand that on one level, but it's funny that I could imagine the performance of her being in a space performing. It would have been really an incredibly special experience, probably very different each time I could imagine yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I wonder why he 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 would have just thought of it for radio. Yeah, I tried to dig into that a little bit because I, I like you was like there feels like something that's so ripe for the performance context here, and I get there were imp impression there was some kind of I don't know if it's philosophical underpinning as to why radio was the intended form and whether it was simply to just remark on radio as. Um, uh, I don't want to say garbage, but you know, maybe he wasn't the biggest fan of radio. I don't know, but uh, um, yeah, maybe to kind of make some kind of provocation of some sort. Yeah, yeah, I do wonder that. And within your your masters, I mean, I'm intrigued. Is there is there any other works like this one that have really come forth as pieces that are causing a lot of reflection for you on on your own practice and relationship with? Um, electroacoustic performance or, or you know performance generally I guess yeah I think I'm really a huge fan of uh, Maurizio Cargill and 
there's definitely links with Berio. I'm also really a big fan of Bruno Moderna, again, like Italian composer who set up this sort of sound studio in Milan. Uh, I can't remember the name. It's it's sort of Phonologia Musicale. Probably is not saying that right, but it's it was um, a school set up in Milan for I guess probably probably producing quite a lot of radio works I'd imagine but yeah I feel like these composers are working within it, it it's not quite like the GRM that they're, they're kind of working within an electroacoustic context but that seeps out into theatre it seeps out into performance and it feels very important that there's there's people present in the music whereas I think with GRM is a very different kind of history from the stuff that I've come across, you know, where it's it's very much about an acousmatic experience. And I mean, I'm a complete fan of Parmigiani and the kind of Luke Ferrari, the, the pieces that have come out of um, GRM, but it, it seems very, it's increasingly seems to have become very focused on this pure listening experience, which I, I can appreciate and I can be incredibly moved by, especially Parmigiani, but I think something that Berio and Moderna and Cargill were doing, something more, kind of a bit more visceral, where it was really this kind of physical presence of sound, um, which I'm interested in because it's it's kind of leading me into, I think, where I'm kind of heading with what I do. It's not just about making these kind of manipulated sounds from field recordings, instruments, objects. It's about kind of this immersive experience with this juxtaposition of bodies, presence, objects, performers. I don't know, maybe I'm going to make a theatre piece. <laughs> <laughs> that's really... I feel like that's kind of where I'm heading. That's <laughs> what I want to do. <laughs> wow. I mean, I remember seeing your performance with part wild Maine, i think it was where you did it all in the dark with a variety of different speakers and stuff which is amazing but there's also something almost that felt from from my end quite theater-like about that it was entering a constructing environment rather than you know seeing a performance per se which was really stuck with me i can remember that quite vividly even now Oh, which one was? Where was it? It was Supernormal Festival. Where Supernormal? Yeah, yeah. That is exactly what you know. I I kind of went on to do my masters after that because it's yeah. That was really great with that piece because you had you could detect these bodies moving around you. You could detect their presence. Mm. It was kind of like a really DIY version of a multi-channel uh, acousmatic piece. Uh, where you'd have different sound sources coming from different parts of the space and the room. Some of it would be acoustic. Some of it would literally be the sound of someone walking around. And I think that's really stuck with me. And that's a thing that I, I mean, I, I'm incorporating in what, into what I do still really is, is how can you have this presence and visceral kind of bodily experience enabled by acousmatic or kind of not necessarily a fixed piece but um a multi-channel immersive experience 
I'm wondering whether this has come up in your your masters at all, but I'm interested in you know it's never really struck me before, but hearing you talk about it, the fact that the GRM, as wonderful as it is, often the human composer dissolves into the process of making the pieces, and there seems something very deliberate about that. I mean, it seems to be from from where I am anyway. You, you probably can speak with. Uh, in, in a more informed way about this but at the deliberate rejection of some kind of composer ego but I mean is there a fr- from you know what you've been looking into is there a reason why human presence is something that falls to the back and almost really falls out of the frame with a lot of this electroacoustic work it's funny because quite often whoever is composing the piece not always but quite often they're the ones who perform it as well mm. Um, and there's a great importance placed on the composer. So in some senses, the piece does dissolve from the human aspect of the performer because it's a darkened room. You're on this desk in the middle of the space, but the composer, you know, the name, the composer, it's still, it, it does still really adhere to this conservative concept of a composer within that kind of, western art music tradition (laughs) yeah i never thought about that yeah the i you know i don't want to say the ego of the composer but it it still really is at the forefront and i don't feel that the the experience that i've had from this kind of music which is incredibly academic hasn't managed to question or look at the its context in a critical light at all which is really really surprising actually because the department I'm in is actually coupled up with an instrumental department and they're completely separate but it feels like the instrumental department are really they're questioning their presence they're questioning what it means to perform but it's almost like it hasn't quite happened in the electroacoustic world which is strange isn't it for a type of music which I think probably prides itself on questioning at least some avenues of what it's doing and and throwing out a lot of presumption and convention yet there's this unlit corner where it just is like oh that oh it's completely unlit it it really is and Mm. i think it's such a shame it feels like you know the writings of Schaefer. you know he was really i mean he was completely in some ways really unsure of what he was trying to put forward this this music that was essentially gonna obliterate the concept of sound and music you know it was it was incredible I guess provocation in some ways of how is that we look at sound and how is how is it that we receive sound and how is it performed but it feels almost like that project in some critical way is it's been abandoned along the way somehow um right. I, I, you know i mean not in every i mean this is my specific experience of being in an academic department and i think yeah, there's always composers that have um really really challenged that and used electroacoustic music but i think they're more they're composers probably more along the lines that i see like stockhausen where it's not strictly just electroacoustic. There's a performer there and it's um, it does incorporate some elements of theatre or um, movement, 
dance, but they don't sit strictly within an electroacoustic setting. Yeah. Um, in fact, Martina, when she came on this podcast, I think picked a Stockhausen piece and the name of it has gone right out my head which is great but it was (laughs) (laughs) it starts with applause from the performers which I think when performed like in the context of I I mean this was an orchestral piece rather than electroacoustic I guess but it seemed instantly to generate a dialogue between this idea of we are the performers on stage but then we're doing something the audience does so there was awareness of that kind of dynamic and I guess through that the presence and the role of the performers and and those kind of power relationships as well which is really interesting actually really funny as well like there's something very amusing about hearing an audio like a group of performers like clapping themselves before they've done anything (laughs) Yeah. yeah but that's what I mean there's this real there's this real awareness of context and a con yeah a consciousness that i i don't think you have in in acousmatic music as much hmm. just because of the maybe the structure of it Let's talk about your third album here, Kelly. Um if you could give me the name of it and then also a little bit about why it's important to you as well. Yeah. The last thing that I've chosen is, uh, Arca who I've, I've only kind of come to know about in the last six months, really. And the title of the record is just self titled Arca. Um, I think it's among, you know, it's his third release and I've chosen it because I'm really fascinated about how, Electroacoustic techniques and production techniques are being used now in kind of more popular culture, kind of coming out of that academic setting. And I was just really, yeah, really mesmerized by how he was making the sounds. And it also harks back for me because I grew up on like R&B and grime and garage, listening to pirate radio. I was going to kind of these gigs in um, really low-key underground gigs of you know, MCs and turntablists in, you know, small places in London. And for me, it felt there's a connection between these kind of electronic musics that I was listening to when I was growing up. And now it feels like somewhere I'm coming back to some other iteration of it. You know, like there's really strong focus on rhythms and pulses. And it's something that I guess I haven't been so interested in over the years. I've been looking into other, I guess, more established pioneers of music history, you know, electroacoustic or classical music, avant-garde music. And well, and improvised musics and, and so on. But this this felt like a real kind of excitement 
how these newer generations are coming up and using these techniques that have now become accessible. You can, you can make this music for not, you know, it's, it's, you can do it in a home studio setup. And I feel like he's genuinely using some of these, you know, kind of granular synthesis, all these kind of things that would have been the reserve of a very specific kind of music. And he's, he's taken it into a new exciting, yeah, place, I think. It's quite strange, I think, to hear those techniques in sort of a, a context of songs when I guess, like yourself, my background for being familiar with these kind of um, techniques in this form of sca- sound sculpting is generally in the form of abstraction, like it's very centred on those techniques rather than being yeah. a conduit for melody. It's really awesome to hear it used as fuel for actually something that has some conventional adherence to pop, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like his mastery and subtlety and like control over the elements that he's using. Cause a lot, a lot of his sound sources are acoustic and he'll, you know, like he'll then further manipulate them to such a degree that the sound sources are completely unrecognizable. And I think it is rare that you would hear these in a more kind of song based setting. And I think he does it with such skill that, I mean, there are other artists, you know, he's obviously working with people like FKA Twigs and Kalila. Mm. Um, uh, I think Kanye West as well has worked with him. So it feels like, I mean, maybe there's other people, but I don't, I don't know of them. I've only come to Arco, I think, through somehow talking with uh, a good friend, Andy Brown, who's working for the Annex label that's based here in Manchester. And she was just talking about different things that are kind of the uh, who Annex are organising tours for. And, yeah, it just came up in a conversation. I was like, let's have a listen. I was just like, that's crazy. You know, the, the things, the sound sources and manipulations that he's doing are really it's really fresh and exciting and I feel it should be taught on our course really. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I wonder how long it will be, it will take for it to be inducted into the chronology of that kind of thing from an academic context. Yeah, probably, probably for not some time. <laughs> <laughs> I'd imagine. Or, may, or maybe it would be, but maybe it would be more, I guess, I don't know, departments that are less academic. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Maybe a mixture of art context. I don't know, because sound does seem to be something that's coming in now with into a bit more of, you know, you know, art education. I've got friends who are working, for, who come from an art background, but then they'll be doing sound pieces and, that you know, they, they come into granular synthesis and comb filters and all these other kinds of things that would have been the reserve maybe for more of an electroacoustic um setting and now it's it's these sound manipulations that are becoming more yeah more wide widely accessible because of the cost of technology going down and this stuff being more widely you know you can find anything out online that you need to make a sound sound how you want it to sound there's so many blogs on that kind of thing. Yeah, so I've kind of geeked out on quite a few blogs on Arca 
and how he's doing what he's doing, um, which is it's really interesting. Oh, that's cool. How much detail does he go into it in terms of like in, does he talk about how he crafts like specific sounds and equipment and using equipment and stuff? It's a kind of a home studio setup that he's got, and he uses Ableton. You know, he's got an Instagram account where he'll post images of his like you know session opening Ableton and. Uh, I think he, you know, he he doesn't give away everything in the interviews that I've read. He can be a bit sort of guarded about some things, hmm. but there's certain techniques that he will go into some detail about, um, like how you um, order different VSTs in Ableton can have a huge impact and difference, which you know is, is something that producers have been using all the time. But I think it's something that he molds in a way that is a lot more in in line with like making electroacoustic music what about how his voice sits on this record i mean as i understand this is the only record i've really heard of his solo but i think that the vocals play a more prominent role here than they have done on previous albums what do you make of the voice and the place that holds on the record yeah this record is actually sung in his mother tongue as well. It grew up, you know, in Venezuela. He's, he's singing in Spanish, which I think he says is is really to convey this emotion. And maybe, you know, that's the kind of theme between all of the three picks that I've had, actually, is this kind of quite raw emotional content. And I think, I mean, I do really admire and love his other... EPs um, and releases. This is this feels really different. I think there's a real there's a real beauty to it, and kind of it feels like he's trying to really trying to communicate something. I mean, I speak a bit of Spanish. I can understand some of the words, but again, it's like the other the other pieces that I've chosen. I think it doesn't necessarily matter if you if you can understand the language. I think there's so much information and content that comes through just through articulation, the cadences, the you know, there's so much other information, emotional information in the piece, in, in these pieces, um, not just through the what the communication of words. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I don't speak any Spanish whatsoever, but um, it's very apparent that there's something coming through. I mean, I understand as well that he was crying as he was recording some of those vocal takes, many of which were first takes. So the, the yeah. fact that there's some of those non-lyrical elements as well pressing yeah. against the outline of his voice, I think, is really interesting. And again, within the context of like electroacoustic composition, I mean, I guess that's the ultimate reconciliation of human presence and electroacoustics. If someone is crying over granular synthesis, then... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, are you familiar at all with his work with Björk? I mean, is that something that you've listened to much of? Not really. I'm not... I really admire her, but I'm, I just... I can't... I, I don't really enjoy her sounds, really. Yeah, um, <laughs> Which, yeah. I, so it's not something I've listened to massively. Although, obviously, like, getting into his stuff, I, I you know, he's done a lot of work with her, and I think he mostly pretty much co-produced and wrote some elements of her most recent record 
Yeah, I think he's become increasingly involved. Apparently it was her that made him want to sing again, I think. She was like, oh, go on. Or kind of just teased it out of him and uh, made, him, made him reconsider bringing the voice back into his work, which is which is interesting. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. Yeah. Mm. It feels like there's almost a convergence between... I, I, I've been listening to that Björk album a fair bit, but... Um, like almost a, a sense of convergence between their two most recent records. Like they're both allowing the presence of one another to bleed into their own personal output as well. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I've listened to it. I just, it, it's just her aesthetic. I just really, I just really struggle with it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe in my later years, I might kind of, you know, find something that I really enjoy in it, but, um, so it was actually I was really surprised about their pairing, and I'm I've been quite surprised how closely they've worked. Um, but you you know you can't predict that chemistry between two people working together. Um, I can see you know he's worked with FK Twigs and Kalila, and I, I I absolutely love their their stuff. So and I th- you know I think uh, that process is quite often a, a reciprocal one when you're working with someone in such a different way. It's it's great that she's managed to convince him to start singing again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. How good is that Kalala album as well? Take Me Apart, I think it the is. Most recent one, Take Me Apart. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely amazing. Yeah. I got to see her perform in Manchester as well recently. It's absolutely wonderful. Oh, was it good? It's like, yeah, it was great. It's like surreal because, you know, again, I'm coming to all this. Like I've not been, you know, I've been to like, you know, shows where, you know, maybe a hundred people i've not been to these huge shows for for a while and it was like mass karaoke like everyone knew i mean me included (laughs) i knew every single word everyone was dancing it was yeah it felt incredible wow yeah it is a completely different beast isn't it i've had the same as you where uh it was something that i think as more of a teenager that i went to more of these large-scale gigs and now it's much smaller rooms and it's a lot of sitting and listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't... I mean, and that's what I'm genuinely... Sorry, I'm genuinely excited about where where these kind of, you know, these more independent electronic artists are going. You know, they've kind of been fostered by the, you know, labels like XL. And I, I find that really... It's kind of really reassuring and it feels like a, a great outlet for for some of these upcoming more experimental electronic artists This has been great, Kelly. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about these records. And in fact, Ark has been one on my radar in particular for quite some time, but I've never sat down with that record up until this point. So thank you for giving me the nudge necessary to just get on and listen to it. (laughs) 
Oh, that's great. <laughs> it's been great to chat to you. <laughs> and if people want to check out your own, uh, see what you're up to and keep up to date with what you're doing, is there a best place for them to be headed on the internet? Yeah, this my website, um, kellyjanejones.org or uh, Facebook. I've got a page on there as well. Great. Well, thank you so much. And to everyone listening, I'll see you next time. <laughs>